a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, one of the great things about this job is every week, my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com stops by to drop off a reality supplement exclusively for my listeners. Eric, great to have you back on the show. Oh, thanks, Brian. I'm going to channel my best WC Fields and say, you're too kind, sir, too kind. (laughs) Well, for for a change, we actually have some good news to talk about. And I mean, we try to find the bright side, but um, let's, let's talk a little bit about how the truth is finally beginning to come out about uh, you know some of the official things that were denied and suppressed over the last couple of years. Talk to me about uh, your uh, your reaction to uh, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky uh, coming clean on a couple of things. Well, it seems like all four wheels are coming off the wagon, aren't they? Uh, she just admitted publicly that 75%, that 75% in italics, of all the deaths that have been attributed to the Rona were of people who were already very sick, who had comorbidities, you know, who were people who were probably going to die because they were on the way to dying of some other thing, uh, like heart disease, respiratory disease, diabetes, uh, you name it. So the typical Rona fatality was somebody like Colin Powell, who was probably going to die of one thing or another anyhow. The point being, it's implicit in this, is that the the threat of this, as you and I have been talking about for almost two years now, has been grotesquely exaggerated when you can say that 75% of the people who died were people who were very ill, who had significant medical problems, which means that very few people uh, were people who were perfectly healthy and didn't have any problems, had much to worry about this from the get-go. And even if you take the totality, the entire number, we're still we're still talking about what is it? What is it? Something like a 99.8 something percent recovery rate from this thing uh, across the board. So it just highlights uh, the the, the panic mongering, the grotesque exaggeration, and more importantly, the way they lied about all this and are now retracting the, their their lies one after the other. This announcement by Walensky follows the admission a week or so ago uh, that the masks that they were touting as the the cure-all for everything, were mostly theater, and on and on it goes. And yet uh, the masks are still very much, you know, insisted on. I had to take my uh, octogenarian mother to, to the doctor yesterday, and mm-hmm. um, I, I reluctantly put on my own mask before going in, but uh, you can guess what happened. The, the yeah. nurse behind the desk looked at it and said, nope, you got to put on one of these, and handed me one of the, uh, you know, blue and white uh, face diapers. I. You know, I put it on for the sake of being there for my mom, but, uh, you know, this I, I'm protesting with every every cell in my body every time I have to do that. Well, as you should, as we all ought to. Uh, you know, it's absurd, but the problem is that we have a significant portion of the population that has been put into a state of fear-induced, induced rabid anxiety over this, and their line of security blanket now is the chin speedo or the face diaper, as we style it. It doesn't have any purpose other than the psychological purpose of making these people feel better. And that's alarmingly dangerous because you can no longer deal with facts. Uh, and these people who are responsible for that are people like Walensky, people like Fauci, 
who never came before the public in time before this before this this pathologization occurred and told people look yeah there's something going around and yeah if you have an elderly relative if you're obese if you're diabetic if you're immunocompromised you know this is something you should take seriously and uh, but by and large otherwise it's not that big a deal so people should calm down they didn't do that instead they amped up the fear and that's why we're in this horrible state that we're in right now with with so many people terrified of essentially a boogeyman under the bed. You know, I saw a report out of Salt Lake City earlier today, and, and this, is, this is from one of the big news stations, which has been notorious for their fear-mongering over COVID. And, and now they're hand-wringing over, well, the lines are too long at the COVID testing centers, and the government's had to adjust, you know, the, the wait times and so forth. And it's like, you guys don't even understand. You're feeding the problem by encouraging people who may or may not even be sick to go get tested as if, you know, if it's so bad that you don't even know if you're sick. Come on. Come on. Sure. Sure. And it's gotten it's it's become theater of the absurd, hasn't it? What do we have now? The Floronicon, the Omicron, the Delta Cron. I mean, it sounds like a bad video game from the 80s almost. <laughs> and this testing regime is spiraling out of control. How long is it going to be before people line up to get tested every hour? Because you never know. You were okay an hour ago, but you might have gotten in contact with the, the Florona in the last 45 minutes. Better go get tested. Yeah, it's it's discouraging to see how many people have bought into it. And, and Eric, there's one other aspect that I can think of that masks serve, and you and I have touched on this before. Mm-hmm. And not only does it give people, you know, the, the security blanket of, look, I, I feel safe because I have my face covering on, but it's the most visible sign of compliance that a person can show, you know, to, to signal that I, I am compliant, I am a good person. And, and that's kind of scary in and of itself. Well, sure. It coerces compliance. It feeds into uh, the this business of forcing people to comply with the jab mandates. You know, that's something you and I have been talking about for almost two years now. We saw this coming, that if people would be willing to put on this mask, implicit in that is that that's a legitimate thing to do, that that's a necessary thing to do. And if that's necessary and you have an obligation to wear a mask, then doesn't it follow that you have an obligation to take the jab, too? Wow. I mean, I look, I, I I'm grateful that the truth is finally coming out. I feel I almost feel a little bit of, of sympathy for uh, for Rochelle Walensky because it's pretty clear she's the one who's going under the bus. But I noticed the official explanation so far has been, well, you know, if, if it appears there were discrepancies, we weren't wrong. It's just, you know, she's mm-hmm. not a great communicator. Well, who well is, there's some CYA going on here, yeah, too, I think. Yeah. That as the narrative comes unglued, a lot of these people are beginning to worry that they might actually be held accountable for the statements that they made and for the omissions, the deliberate calculated, in my opinion, omissions they made with regard to pertinent facts about this whole thing. Uh, and they just want to avoid potentially being frog-marched into a court somewhere or sued into the poorhouse. Uh, so there's that. Um, the other thing that's going on today is you and I talked about about a little bit off the air, is this pending Supreme Court decision with regard uh, to Biden's use of OSHA to force people to take the jab. And uh, you know that could happen uh, as soon as any time now. So we'll have to wait and see what goes on with that. You know, one of the video clips which has recently come out of the memory hole, somehow it's, it's been resurrected, mm-hmm. is Rochelle Walensky uh, confessing to CNN's Wolf Blitzer, the vaccine's no longer can control the spread of the virus. And with that mm-hmm. in mind, why would these mandates even be an issue? You know, I mean, why would, let alone before the Supreme Court, if, if they don't control the spread, then why make people get them? Of course. Well, and I think you can dive deeper into that and say, if, if it's not even a vaccine, as traditionally understood, which is in fact the case here, 
then how do you make the justification at all? You know, it's one thing if you can say, okay, this vaccine provides immunity in the case of, say, like a polio vaccine. You take the shot and now you can't get polio. And remember when Biden said, all you have to do is take the vaccine and you can't get or give COVID. Remember that? That was back in well, July. It's yes. Become- Right. And and now they've admitted that it's not a vaccine. What it is is a symptom suppressor. That's the best it is. It's a temporary symptom suppressor. That is, it's a palliative. Uh, it's something that makes you feel a little better, but it doesn't prevent you from getting the Rona. It certainly doesn't prevent you from giving the Rona. And that completely undercuts any argument that you can make that it's some kind of duty uh, on the part of every citizen to take this jab for the sake of protecting other people because it doesn't protect them and it puts them at risk. The other thing that's remarkable to me about all this is that literally almost every day, certainly every week, a story percolates, percolates up in the news feed about a healthy young athlete who has gotten uh, myocarditis or who's actually had a heart attack or some other thing that was just exceptionally rare in that cohort of people until all these jabs started coming out. And you'd think people would put two and two together, and I'm not saying that correlation is necessarily causation, but it certainly ought to give us pause and make us stop and think, well, hmm, this should be looked into before we go any farther, particularly as far as injecting kids with this thing. Well, yeah, if if the people who have been pushing the vaccine didn't know it would lose long-term efficacy, how would they, you know, why would they push it then not knowing if it would cause adverse effects long-term as well? Well, that's, isn't that the core problem with this? Uh, you know, the orange man pushed all this stuff at warp speed. And the problem with that is that you can't know. We're in the dark here. Even if you assume the best of intentions, even if you assume that the pharmaceutical industries are doing this out of saintly concern for public health and not for the potentially billions of dollars in profits that they can reap, the bottom line is there is no way to know what's going to happen with a drug that got rammed onto the market without any kind of long-term testing. Traditionally, my understanding is that uh, before you could put a drug on the market, it had to have like five years of, of placebo and, uh, and other forms of testing to determine, okay, what's going to happen? Because there's no substitute for that. You have to wait and see. You have to let time go by before you can come to any kind of a, a reasonable conclusion about efficacy and danger with drugs. But these things were just jammed onto the market uh, in a, an extremely reckless manner, and now we're having all these awful consequences as a result. Okay, we're going to come back to this in just a few moments. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. There is a link in the show notes, which you will find at thebrianheidshow.com. Please stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back once again. Thanks for joining us. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Eric, I was looking at uh, one of your recent columns. It didn't just happen. And as I read that, I felt very vindicated because there's a lot of spin going on right now. As you mentioned in the last segment, uh, the CYA on the part of people who have been in positions of officialdom and authority, you know, they they are trying very hard to convince us, hey, hey, we weren't wrong. You know, this just somehow developed the way that it developed. Let's let's talk about why we should not be content with that excuse. Well, I don't think we should be content with that excuse because, after all, these people put themselves in a position of power and authority over us 
their decisions have consequences, and that's a, that's a big responsibility. And you and I are held accountable for the decisions that we make, and yet somehow these people who wield this power to exercise decision-making power over others and to countermand their own decisions uh, are not held to account. Just think about the economic uh, despoilation that has been called that has been caused by fomented by people like Fauci and Walensky. How many people do you know who have lost their businesses? I know several. Uh, you know, and that that's a big thing. You pour your life into something, and it just the rug gets pulled out from under you without any kind of compensation, and you're expected to just walk away with your hat in your hand and say, "Oops, sorry, you know, mistakes were made." Uh, meanwhile, a guy like Fauci collects something like, I think, is $350,000 a year is what he'll get after he retires from government services. Boy, that's that's not not bad pay, considering, you know, yeah. you have to sell your soul not in order to get it. Not pay for destroying how many people's lives. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I think people should start to get angry about that. You know, we're constantly uh, told that for the sake of safety or some other thing, we have to accept limitations on our lives. So this transcends, goes far beyond this Rona business. And we're punished for harms we haven't caused. You and I, uh, we drive down the road and we roll through some speed trap somewhere and we do 37 and a 25 deliberately underposted. And, you know, you get, you get handed a piece of paper that says you have to hand over 150 bucks of your money for having harmed nobody. Uh, meanwhile, Fauci can harm millions and millions of people and retire on $350,000 a year of taxpayer extorted fund money. And that's to me, that is one of the biggest injustices that I see shaping up in front of us right now. Um, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, uh, like I say, she is being thrown under the bus. She's the one being offered up as the sacrificial you know, goat. Uh, but Fauci's going to skate on this, and that, that mm-hmm. sickens me. As it should. You know, he's kind of the J. Edgar Hoover figure of our time. Uh, a lot of the younger people listening to the program probably won't remember old J. Edgar because he's been gone for nearly 50 years. But uh, he held absolute power and sway over the FBI for about that long a period of time, roughly about 50 years. And he seemed immune from any challenge, from any political figure, perhaps because he had dirt on them somehow through his great network. And it may be the case that Fauci knows where the bodies are buried. I don't know what accounts for the pull this guy has. So the one thing that does pop into my mind is that he's got the backing of these gigantic pharmaceutical cartels that are billion-dollar businesses. And those billion-dollar businesses pour a lot of money into politics, into the campaigns of people who are seeking political office. And you know that you better not cross Big Pharma if you want to run for political office. Just ask RFK what happened. If you want to be a public figure, don't cross Big Pharma because they will deploy all their resources and all their tremendous wealth to destroy you. I've noticed uh, trending on Twitter this morning, too. Uh, there is apparently uh, there is some military uh, document that shows that uh, it was, in fact, gain-of-function research, contrary to uh, what uh, Dr. Fauci was saying under oath before uh, Senator Rand Paul and others when he was testifying before Congress. And that's, I mean, he insisted it wasn't gain-of-function. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, the military says, no, it was gain-of-function. And, you know, I, I'm curious if he's going to be able to weasel out of this one. Given his connections, like you point out, it's possible mm-hmm. he will. But uh, there, there's black and white evidence that uh, he was not truthful with the American people. Yeah, I actually watched some testimony the other day. Marco Rubio uh, was, was touching on this subject. And I think it's become pretty much incontrovertible that, indeed, they were doing gain-of-function 
infection research at that lab, and, uh, and it was being funded uh, via hook and by crook through various organs of the U.S. government that were somehow connected with Fauci. And it's all very shady and very questionable, but uh, it, it surely seems that this is not something that just sort of spontaneously arose from a bat in a wet market in Wuhan, but rather from a lab, and that was allowed to get out. Uh, and then for w- w- reasons of having to try to cover that up or because they wanted to make money from it, I don't know what exactly is going on. None of us know exactly w- what was going on other than it's extremely shady and it's been used in a way to take away our liberties and to terrify, to pathologize the population, which is, you know, that, that's something that if you go back into history at the end of World War II, uh, they tried. One of the figures that was tried at, at Nuremberg was a guy named Julius Streicher. Now, Streicher was not uh, a member of the German military. He commanded no troops, and he himself killed nobody. But what he did do was to scare the crap out of the German people by publishing this magazine called Der Stormer, in which he portrayed the Jews as this, this health threat, a bacillus that was going to poison the people and that had to be dealt with. He was strung up for that. Wow. Yeah, I guess I guess we're going to find out if justice will prevail in our time as well. Mm-hmm. I'm, I want to shift gears real quick. We've only got a couple minutes left, but you had a wonderful column called Two is One, and you make a yep. very clear distinction between wealth and money. Let's talk about why that matters at this point in time. Well, two is one is a, a prepper or military term, meaning that uh, it's always good to have uh, an extra on hand of some essential item. Um, so that's where that term comes from. And as far as the rest goes, uh, we have this really odd problem of our money being um, a not very reliable way to store our wealth. And a piece of paper doesn't necessarily have any value other than the willingness of people to accept it in return for something that is of value, like a tangible good. So given the way things are going with inflation getting to the point of being very, very alarming as far as how rapidly it's, it's occurring – uh, I wrote this article urging people to consider buying things that actually have value as a way to store value and a way to hedge against this this despoilation of their paper money. Give me an example of of some of the tangible things a person could could turn their money into. Well, they're big things and they're small things. You know, land is always of value, especially if it's land that you can use to grow food on, for example. Your home has a, a massive value to you in that it's shelter for you and your family. On a smaller scale, tools, equipment, uh, things that you can use to help you get by are very important. I've lately been putting money into getting all my vehicles completely up to date in terms of all the service and all the parts that they need and getting additional backup spares um, so that in the future, when those parts either become difficult to find or they become exorbitantly expensive because of the diminution in the value of money, I'll already have them on hand. Yep. I I know it sounds apocalyptic to some to say, you know, you should be turning your money into tangible things, but when you consider how much of your money consists in the form of electrons in a computer or just a mm-hmm. notation on a ledger somewhere, in other words, it's not really in your hands, it's not tangible, that could vanish with the power going out, it could vanish with the stroke of an executive pen, as you know, we saw under FDR. I mean, you you could. Yep. There are a lot of forces that that could take it away from you if it's not actually in your hands. So, I, I to me, what you're, the advice you're giving here is very very sound. Though to some people, it may sound like you guys are both a couple of you know nut jobs for even considering that it could happen. Well, 
But you know what? It's not speculative, is it? We're, how, how, what's the rate of inflation over the course of the past 12 months? I think it's something like at least 10%. Yeah. It's a very big number. So in other words, you've taken a 10% haircut. Whatever money you had in the bank is worth it has 10% less buying power than it had a year ago. So in effect, you've got a 10% tax on your wealth uh, without you ever having actually had to dig in your pocket and pay it. But nonetheless, you've lost that, that much purchasing power of your money. And that doesn't show any signs of abating. So if you were to buy something that you're going to need at some point anyway, that's the point I wanted to make in the article. You know, we're all going to need things like tires and brake pads and, and whatnot. Uh, you buy them now, it's, you, know, you would have had to buy them anyway, but at least now you've got them for a price that may be considerably less than what it might be a year from now. I think that's super sound advice. Eric, thank you for joining me again. Always great to visit with you. Likewise, Brian. Look forward to the next time. Again, that's Eric Peters from epautos.com. There is a link in the show notes. Go spend some time on his website. Read the articles. Read the comments. You will come away better for the experience. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Whether you've been a short-term listener or a long-time listener, you've probably picked up on the fact that this program is made possible by great sponsors. I just want to give a very quick shout-out to acknowledge them and uh, let you know they are the ones who make it possible for me to do what I do. So if you find value in this program or the information that I bring you on a daily basis, let them know. Tell them thank you or do business with them. That would, that would actually be the best thing to do. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, and also GovernYourIncome.com. So there's been a very interesting shift, and I, I know that this has been obvious to some people. People who've paid very close attention have noticed that, uh, hey, Weren't we saying this just, uh, you know, a short time ago, and now it appears people in officialdom are, are, well, they're running into the truth in ways that they can no longer brush it aside. And I don't think anything illustrates the depth of deception that we've been subjected to, like the way those in authority eventually come to embrace the very same truths that they were actually working to suppress for these past two years. Got a great article here from thefederalist.com. This is from L. Reynolds. And she describes how the media and the CDC have just quietly admitted to three COVID truths after two years of lies. Did they think we wouldn't notice? Here's what she reports. She says the COVID bureaucracy has spent two years now preaching lies, censoring anyone who challenges the lies, and eventually coming around to admit the same truths they previously denounced. In the case of masks and vaccines, the flip-flop was even more elaborate. They insisted masks didn't work, back when masks were scarce, and that the vaccine was suspicious, at least under Trump, only to spin around and then tout both. And now that neither works effectively against the Omicron variant, the narrative is falling apart again. Now, over the weekend, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director, Rochelle Walensky, appeared on numerous news shows and she bluntly admitted some big truths that critics of COVID mania have been saying all along. Another admission of hers from August resurfaced on social media after months of the major media memory-holing it. 
So L. Reynolds says it's about time COVID bureaucrats come clean. And Walensky's comments don't cover the half of it, but we're old enough to remember what the same group of bullies was saying not too long ago. So here's here are three COVID truths that now are being admitted to by the director of the CDC after nearly two years of telling us, no, 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 that's, that's not the case. Truth number one, the vaccine doesn't prevent transmission. Our vaccines are working exceptionally well, but what they can't do anymore is prevent transmission. Walensky told CNN's Wolf Blitzer in August. That's a clip that made the rounds anew over the weekend. But that's not the narrative that we've been inundated with for the past year. USA Today ran a fact check with the headline, Vaccines Protect Against Contracting Spreading COVID-19 in November of 2021, quoting health experts who insisted that getting the jab makes people much less likely to be infected, therefore much less likely to spread the virus. Now, President Biden went even further, claiming in July, you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. In October, he said, we're making sure health care workers are vaccinated because if you seek care at a health care facility, you should have the certainty that the people providing that care are protected from COVID and cannot spread it to you. Now, he continued to parrot the claim just last month, implying that vaccinated people couldn't spread COVID when he asked, how about making sure you're vaccinated so you do not spread the disease to anybody else? So there's one truth that has finally come out. And, and with them admitting it, that's, <clears throat> this, is, this is the death knell for the official narrative. Or at least it's, it's one of many death knells that are currently sounding for it. Truth number two that has come out. COVID disproportionately affects the vulnerable. In a Good Morning America appearance, Walensky admitted that the overwhelming number of deaths, over 75%, occurred in people who had at least four comor- comorbidities. You realize that's what people have been saying all along. Their response efforts should focus on protecting vulnerable populations. In other words, not sending COVID-positive patients into nursing homes and maintaining normal activities for populations that are at low risk. In other words, not shutting down schools for semesters on end. But it was Walensky herself who confessed last February that the CDC's guidelines for reopening schools were influenced by the vehemently anti-in-person teaching, in-person learning teachers unions which Walensky admitted resulted in direct changes to the guidance. Emails uncovered in September further showed that the CDC had changed its school masking policy under pressure from the National Education Association, the the nation's largest teachers union. And it was the coalition of power-hungry lockdown advocates and fawning media who put disgraced former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo on a pedestal despite his decision to force COVID-positive patients into nursing homes, causing thousands of unnecessary deaths among the most vulnerable. This coalition also worked with the CDC to push months of lockdowns, business closures, mask mandates, travel restrictions, and now vaccine mandates on Americans, despite the fact that the average healthy American is at low risk of dying from COVID. I don't know if you've had a chance to read through the Great Barrington Declaration but essentially what she just admitted here is the, the signers and the crafters of the Great Barrington Declaration were right. Focus on protecting the vulnerable. But let everybody else live their lives normally, seeing as the virus does not adversely affect the vast majority of people who actually catch it. 
Yes, it's very dangerous for some. There's no doubt about that. But for most people, like 99% of people, that vulnerability is not so great. And yet, uh, you know, there was such a concentrated smear campaign against the signers of the Great Barrington Declaration. Why these these fringe medical experts? No, they, they actually knew what they were talking about. And now the powers that be are coming around and recognizing this. Here's truth number three. Deaths from and with COVID aren't the same thing. I know the, the urgency. I told you so is so strong here, but I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. Fox News' Brett Baer asked Walensky on Sunday, how many of the 836,000 deaths in the U.S. linked to COVID are from COVID and how many are with COVID? Those data will be forthcoming, Walensky promised, acknowledging the distinction that Baer pointed out. But a bureaucracy that was intent on maximizing COVID panic and death counts to undermine Trump and stir the popularity of tyrannical policies wasn't so keen on admitting this distinction in the past. So, for example, in Washington state, a May 2020 report found that the state's health department was overreporting COVID-19 cases by up to 13 percent by counting anyone who tests positive for COVID-19 and subsequently dies as a coronavirus death. A subsequent investigation found that Washington health officials appeared to be doing it again in December of the same year. In Colorado, gunshot victims were also counted among COVID death tallies if the victims had tested positive for COVID-19 within the past 30 days. What? Yeah. And local authorities in Florida counted a man who died in a motorcycle crash as a COVID victim in July of 2020. But that didn't stop media outlets and bureaucrats like Dr. Anthony Fauci from using inflated death tolls to stoke fear and panic as justification for more restrictions and mandates. What COVID factoid that anti-lockdowners had been insisting all along will Walensky and the CDC admit next? Well, L. Reynolds says, who knows? But it's safe to say there won't be any apologies or honest acknowledgments of error. Because we saw none of those things with masks or with the ineffectiveness of lockdowns, vaccines, the lab leak theory. By the way, there's now military documents that have surfaced. which again seemed to indicate that uh, Dr. Fauci, under oath, lied to Congress's face when he was questioned about the funding of that uh, gain-of-function research at the Wuhan laboratory. So instead of admitting to, well, uh, we made a mistake or we were wrong about this, you can expect them to use half-truths or flat-out lies to try convincing you that they've never been wrong, all evidence to the contrary. Classic gaslighting. I mean, it takes a lot of effort to stay up on this stuff. In fact, it takes enough effort that uh, sometimes I feel like I would drive myself to the point of insanity if I cataloged every single one of the times, you know, that uh, what they said this and now they're saying this. I'm grateful for people like Elle Reynolds and and her great article here, which will be posted on my website, thebrianhydeshow.com in today's show notes. So I urge you to check it out for yourself. And just, I'm not telling you, don't believe anything anybody tells you unless it comes from these, these, these lips. No. I'm just saying be very skeptical when people who are claiming authority over your life magically always seem to have the answer that results in, well, more power over you and your life. 
that has more power in their hands over you and your life. Chances are very good it's not your interest they're looking out for. It's their own interest and their own power. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Now, this message is actually of great importance to any of my listeners within the state of Utah, but particularly those who are looking to secure a VA loan or a traditional loan or a reverse mortgage, maybe even refinance your existing mortgage. You need to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage because Heather brings decades of experience in the lending industry to the table. What this means in practical terms is she knows what she's doing. She understands clearly what you need. She understands very clearly what the lender needs, and she can make it happen quickly. And it's a very competitive real estate market. So you want to make things happen just as quickly as you possibly can. Otherwise, that dream home you just found is going to be snapped up before you're ready to do something about it. Go in there prepared. Go in prepared with the, with the knowledge that uh, this is the money we have in hand and buy with confidence. Contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage by calling 435-703-4522. They're also located at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, which, by the way, is a wonderful place to be this time of year. Heather's NMLS ID 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You know, history offers a lot of valuable warnings to anyone who takes the time to learn from it. And I know it's easier to just sit back and flip on the TV and, you know, be entertained. But if you actually study history, you will find that uh, the othering of the unvaccinated that we're seeing right now actually has a lot of historical precedent. Maybe not specifically with vaccinated versus unvaccinated, but those precedents where there is a clear marginalizing of a certain subgroup of society for political reasons. Because it's almost every time there's been a very unhappy conclusion to that othering. Got a great article here from Jared McBrady. This is from the Brownstone Institute. Othering unvaccinated persons. Jared McBrady says, In my teaching, I prepare undergraduate students to become high school history teachers. In one course, teacher candidates prepare and deliver mock lessons. Now, their peers play the role of high school students, and I observe and give feedback following these practice lessons. Whether coincidence or a reflection of the times, this fall, a good number of mock lessons covered the rise of totalitarianism. In one excellent lesson, a teacher candidate had his students examine the context that gave rise to totalitarianism. He accompanied this lesson with an excerpt from a world history textbook listing characteristics of totalitarianism. Now, Jared McBrady says this lesson hit on the true purpose for including totalitarianism in high school curricula. And that purpose is not to honor the likes of Stalin or Hitler or Mussolini. Nor is that purpose uh, to provide the methods of totalitarianism as some kind of instructional manual to follow. Rather, the purpose of teaching on totalitarianism is to deliver a warning. Heed well the conditions that yielded totalitarianism so you can recognize and avoid them. He says, as I observed this, teacher's candidate, this teacher candidate's lesson, 
I could not help but think about that purpose in the context of our present time. One passage from the lesson's textbook concerned me the most. Totalitarian leaders often create enemies of the state to blame for things that go wrong. Now, frequently, these enemies are members of religious or ethnic groups. Often, these groups are easily identified and are subjected to campaigns of terror and violence. They may be forced to live in certain areas or subjected to rules that apply only to them. So, creating an enemy of the state requires othering. That is, a process of dehumanizing through marginalizing a group of humans as something different, less than, and other. Such other groups become an easy target to scapegoat, unfairly bearing the blame for a society's ills. And history is replete with examples of othering. The ancient Greeks othered based on language, labeling those who did not speak Greek barbarians. In the United States, chattel slavery and segregation were sustained through othering based on skin color. In Nazi Germany, Hitler othered based on religion, casting Jewish people as enemies of the state. Othering frequently plays on people's fears and stereotypes. In the United States, for example, black men have been othered as thugs, playing on fears about violence and criminality. In another example, public health officials in Nazi-occupied Poland played on the primal human fear of disease. Propaganda posters proclaimed, Jews are lice, they cause typhus. And now some politicians are othering the unvaccinated. These politicians attempt to scapegoat and marginalize this minority group despite knowing that vaccinated and unvaccinated persons alike can contract and spread COVID-19. So in the article, he then provides the words of three politicians as examples of othering language. And he says, I also encourage you to read their words in context. In the United States, President Joe Biden's September 9th press conference announced sweeping vaccine mandates. He expressed that many of us are frustrated with unvaccinated persons. He laid blame on them for the continued pandemic. Biden claimed that this pandemic of the unvaccinated was caused by nearly 80 million Americans who have failed to get the shot. He faulted a distinct minority of Americans for keeping us from turning the corner. And he promised we cannot allow these actions to stand in the way of protecting the large majority of Americans who have done their part and want to get back to life as normal. In a September 17th interview on the Quebec talk show, oh boy, I don't know if I can say this right, La Semaine de Forjoulet, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau labeled those opposed to vaccination misogynists and racists. Then he exclaimed, Canada needed to make a choice. Do we tolerate these people? By the way, there are links to each of these each of these quotes, so you can actually see them in context and, and see for yourself what they were saying. In France, President Emmanuel Macron gave an interview with Le Parisien on January 4th. In his interview, he categorized the unvaccinated as non-citizens, referred to their lies and stupidity as the worst enemies of democracy, and proclaimed, I really want to piss the unvaccinated off. Macron, Macron argued these unvaccinated persons to be only a very small minority who are resisting, and asked a chilling question, how do we reduce that minority? Now, in these communications, Biden, Trudeau, and Macron employed several practices of othering. First of all, they created a majority in-group, signaled by use of the first-person plural, we, us, and a minority othered group, signaled by use of the third-person plural, they, them. 
They cast blame for government pandemic policies on that other group, keeping us from turning the corner. Number three, they used words to signal the in-group that they should be angry with the other group. Many of us are frustrated, or I really want to piss them off. Number four, Trudeau and Macron specifically used labels that devalued this other group. Misogynists, racists, enemies, non-citizens. Number five, most worryingly, Macron and Trudeau questioned whether and how to eliminate this other group. Do we tolerate these people, and how do we reduce that minority? Now, Jared McBrady says, look, my hope is that this will all amount to nothing more than ignored political rhetoric. Empty bluster these politicians hope will score a few popularity points with their electoral base. But he says, my fear is that it will not. Either way, this dangerous othering language must be recognized and condemned. Historians study causality, context, conditions, events, and their outcomes. We've examined the conditions that yielded chattel slavery, the gulag, the Holocaust, Jim Crow, Rwanda. So this isn't an attempt to equate current pandemic policies with these past tragedies. He says this is a warning call. We've seen these conditions before. We've seen where they lead. And he says, turn back now. That way leads to darkness. I think that is one of the most reasonable approaches and explanations that I have heard. And I applaud Jared McBrady for, for writing this. I've got a link in the show notes at the com. And, and again, it comes back to, I, it, it frustrates me when I see people othering, you know, the, the unvaccinated. I have family members who, you know, are very invested in, why won't people do this? Uh, One family member lives in a very urban setting and uh, complains loudly about those stupid rubes who live in places like Utah and Idaho who haven't uh, gotten vaccinated yet. And and to her, it's it's a function of, we're just too dumb. We don't have sense to come in out of the rain. You know, if we had a brain, we'd be outside playing with it. You know, they, she, she just doesn't see that there might be reasons people would say, I'm not going to be forced into participating in a medical procedure that I don't choose to be a part of. But that othering is a very real thing, and it is something that you and I should take care that we don't engage in. Now, I don't know. Maybe the irony is, am I, am I othering by pointing out there are people who are othering me? I hope not, because I respect anybody's decision to choose for themselves if they want to get the vaccine or not. It seems to me those who are doing the othering don't respect that choice. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. If you are tuning in for the first time, first of all, thank you for taking a chance. I know there are a lot of voices out there, and who knows, I may just be one of those guys out there just rattling on to hear himself talk. 
In reality, what I'm trying to do, though, is talk about serious topics, things that actually matter, but to do so in a way that doesn't bring further anger or fear into the situation, because it seems like we have plenty of both of those things. So if you would like to examine some of the events and people and ideas that are shaping the world around us with a focus on principles rather than party, this is a good place to be. If you are if you're looking for a place to offer information for your consideration without the insistence that you have to believe this cuz I said it, this is the place you should feel comfortable. So, pull up a chair, come find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers. I do want to give a quick shout out to one of my sponsors and that is Sewing and quiltingcenter.com in St. George, Utah. Now, I mention this because this month they are having a special event and they really would like you to be a part of it. If you are with if, if you're within earshot, especially if you're in the Inner Mountain West, this may be something you really want to take advantage of. All their machines are on season end pricing. This includes Brother Baby Lock and Genome. Every machine that they sell comes with free classes on how to use the machine. Now, here's the cool thing. Those classes never expire. All machine classes can be taken again if you forget or if you just want to refresh your course. But they've got some wonderful teachers, and they're trying to get folks involved so that they can do their big handy quilter event this month. It's a real thing. Sewing is, is not just, oh, yeah, it's a bunch of old ladies sitting around doing needlepoint. No, this is, this is a legitimate hobby. And if you'd like to learn more, I would encourage you go to sewingquiltingcenter.com or you can go to sewingandquiltingcenter.com and see what they have to offer. And when you do, be sure to let them know that uh, you appreciate them being sponsors of this program. Well, if you found yourself wondering, how did the Supreme Court enable nearly unlimited growth in our national government? I mean, the, the Supreme Court... Uh, the, the testimonies that were heard last week on, on the vax mandates, you know, how did that ever end up in front of the Supreme Court in the first place? You got to understand a little bit of the history involved. And in this case, there's there's one particular case that is is like the that is the uh, watershed event that really enabled unlimited growth in our national government. Wickard v. Filburn, James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies who hosted the uh, Words and Numbers podcast, had a piece published back in February of 2020, Wickard v. Filburn, the Supreme Court case that gave the federal government nearly unlimited power. Here's some background to help you understand how the Supreme Court came to essentially rule, you know, whether the federal government can do something or not. Davies and Harrigan say every presidential election in the United States follows a clear formula. First, many people with absolutely no chance of winning the presidency declare their candidacies. Those who get washed out of the race late in the game see their fortunes rise, which was their goal from the first. Second, candidates with even a chance at winning their party's nomination drift to the outer fringe of their party's ideology. So for Democrats in 2020... That meant appealing to the most progressive of the progressive wing in their party. And finally, when the race is set with two candidates, each of them will converge in the middle, eschewing the ideological members of their own parties. And they say this is so common that every politically observant American is fully aware of what's happening. But this dyed-in-the-wool process obscures the most pernicious element of every presidential campaign which sees both the candidates and the voters 
they both hope to attract ignoring the Constitution at every turn. And to the shame of both groups, they don't even seem to recognize what they're doing. Presidential candidates lay out their respective agendas from Bernie Sanders' plan to move to single-payer health care to Donald Trump's plan for a wall on the southern border to Elizabeth Warren's plans for just about everything else. But nearly all of these plans are unconstitutional twice over. Not only are presidents not given the authority to do these things, but the federal government itself is not empowered to do these things. Which brings us to the topic of enumerated powers. The Constitution creates a government of enumerated powers, which means the federal government is only authorized to do things that are specifically listed in the Constitution. And that list is relatively short. The list appears in Article 1, Section 8, and enumerates the proper objects of congressional legislation. So Congress can borrow money, coin money, regulate its value, and punish counterfeiters. Congress can regulate commerce with foreign nations, among the states, and with Indian tribes. They can establish rules for naturalization and bankruptcy, establish post offices and post roads, issue patents and copyrights, establish courts inferior to the Supreme Court, punish pirates, suppress insurrections, repel invasions, declare war, raise an army, maintain a navy, and make rules for the army and navy. And they can also authorize the militia, leaving to the states the appointment of officers and the authority of training the militias. That's it. That's all the Constitution permits the federal government to do. Now consider the United States' ill-advised flirtation with prohibition, which was enacted nearly 100 years ago. Nowhere in the Article 1, Section 8 powers do you see the authority to ban the manufacture, transport, or sales of alcohol within the United States. When Americans decided they wanted a coast-to-coast ban on alcohol, they amended the Constitution to give the federal government this authority. Fourteen dry years later, Americans came to their senses and they revoked this authority by amending the Constitution again. The 21st Amendment was the only amendment ever ratified for the purpose of undoing a previous amendment. But notice the difficulties that honest people faced when trying to accomplish a pervasive political goal. See, as of 1933, when the 21st Amendment was ratified, Americans still had a constitutionally limited federal government in what Justice Louis Brandis famously called laboratories of democracy in the states. The purpose of limiting the federal government's authority so severely was to put the lion's share of governance in state hands. Each state would govern somewhat differently, and in so doing, the nation would be a huge experiment in democracy. States that governed well would gain business and population. States that governed poorly would lose. By observing what other states did well, each state could learn how to govern better. By losing businesses and population, each state would have an incentive to act on what it learned. And the laboratories of democracy brought to Americans' political lives what market competition brought to their economic lives. But who ended up being tasked with deciding what Article 1, Section 8 actually meant? Well, herein lies the wrinkle that enables all manner of constitutional mischief in the United States. The institution that ended up deciding what the federal government is empowered to do is itself a branch of the federal government. And it should come as no surprise that when push comes to shove, the Supreme Court routinely finds in favor of empowering the federal government. 
Now, this sort of mischief flowed full, flowered fully in the decade following the ratification of the 21st Amendment. Now, back in 1942, the Supreme Court decided a case, Wickard v. Filburn, in which farmer Roscoe Filburn ran afoul of a federal law that limited how much wheat he was allowed to grow. Now, a careful reader might and should ask where the federal government's right to legislate the wheat market is found, because the word wheat is found nowhere in the Constitution. Be that as it may, the federal government's aim was clear enough. It was to keep the price of wheat high enough for farmers to remain profitable. The Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938 put an upper limit on how much wheat farmers were allowed to grow, which would serve to keep prices high by limiting supply. It's still central planning, but, you know, dressed up in fancier clothes, I guess. Roscoe Filborn had grown 12 more acres of wheat than the law allowed. But not only did he not sell the excess wheat outside his home state, he didn't sell it at all. He used the wheat from those 12 acres to feed his cattle. Filburn was very clearly not engaging in commerce, let alone interstate commerce. Yet the Supreme Court found, unanimously, that because Congress had authority to regulate interstate commerce, Congress also had the authority to prohibit Filburn from growing those 12 acres of wheat for his own use. Now, unfortunately, I have to tap the brakes here, but we're going to come back on the other side of our break and talk about the Supreme Court's reasoning. Why would they do something like this? Why would they claim that a guy who just grew his own wheat to feed his own cattle in no way did it enter into commerce... But somehow he was a foul of the law and the government had the right to come in there and dictate to him, no, you cannot grow that wheat. It's a very interesting history lesson, but it will also explain how the Supreme Court has come to rule us. And we'll revisit that, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you a, a column published back in February of 2020. Yes, before the madness. This is from Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan, hosts of the Words and Numbers podcast, which if you haven't subscribed or listened to this podcast, these are two of the clearest and brightest minds that I could point you towards to, to get a lay of the land. Both of these are very, very seasoned educators, and um, these are guys who know their stuff. And I, I really appreciate their breakdown of the Supreme Court case that gave the federal government nearly unlimited power, Willard v. Uh, Filburn, Wickard v. Filburn, uh, back in 1942. So again, just to, to recap, farmer Roscoe Filburn grew 12 more acres of wheat than federal law allowed. And the question is, you know, why, why would federal law be able to prohibit a guy from growing wheat for his own use? None of the 12 acres of wheat that he used was introduced into commerce. He didn't sell it. He simply kept that wheat to feed his own cattle. But the Supreme Court said, no, 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 Congress has the authority to regulate interstate commerce, and therefore they have the authority to prohibit Filburn from growing that wheat for his own use. Now, had Filburn not fed his cattle the excess wheat, he would have been forced to purchase wheat on the open market. 
This is what the Supreme Court ruled. And even if he purchased wheat that was grown within his home state, doing so would have made less wheat available within his home state for other wheat buyers. Consequently, some wheat buyers within his home state would then have had to buy wheat from outside the state. Therefore, Filburn's non-commercial activity was, according to the Supreme Court, interstate commerce. Oh, don't worry. I've, I've got a knot in my brain from trying to follow that logic as well. Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan say, look, the mental gymnastics that went into this ruling made just about any, any activity interstate commerce by definition. Since Wickard, any time Congress has wanted to exercise power not authorized by the Constitution, lawmakers simply have had to make an argument that links whatever they want to accomplish to interstate commerce. Why? Because they know they can get away with it. So today we have NASA, the FDA, the USDA, the EPA, federally subsidized student loans, Medicaid, Medicare, uh, federal minimum wage, and hundreds of other federal agencies, programs, and initiatives. Some of these do indeed involve interstate commerce, but many do not. A century ago, we amended the Constitution when we wanted the federal government to exercise a new authority, that of banning alcohol. But today, they point out, we allow Congress to exercise almost any authority it likes. Further, we allow Congress to hand its authority over to unelected bureaucrats. So whereas regulating alcohol required amending the Constitution, regulating marijuana requires only legislation. Regulating prescription medications requires only bureaucratic action. We've progressed so far down the path of reinterpreting the Constitution as a document that empowers government rather than one that limits it, that unelected bureaucrats today exercise power that the Constitution even withholds from Congress. This is why President Biden went to OSHA to enforce what he knew were unconstitutional mandates that he had no authority to impose. Now, the authors say here this is troubling, even when those bureaucrats may be benevolent or altruistic, informed, and intelligent. But when they aren't, Well, it's extremely dangerous. And as if all that weren't bad enough, we now have presidential candidates detailing their agendas to the voting public. Again, this was written in early, early 2020. If Congress, enabled by the Supreme Court, has overstepped its constitutional bounds, the presidency has eclipsed the very definition of the office. The president heads the executive branch of government. Its role, by definition, is to execute the laws that Congress passes. But presidential candidates present themselves in legislative terms, and they do this every time they offer a plan for anything. So Congress is charged with the legislative function, and this they are intended to exercise within a constitutional framework deliberately designed to make that job exceedingly difficult. Why were things designed this way? The answer is to limit the ability of the federal government to do much of anything without extremely broad support. That's what safeguards the rights of the individual. And when Roscoe Filburn's right to grow wheat on his own land to feed his own cattle was violated, the rest of this was largely a foregone conclusion. The sad result has been a government with nearly limitless power. Sadder still is what this has done to our elections because every four years, the American people ask candidates for more things that neither the president nor Congress is constitutionally authorized to deliver. And this encourages a brand of candidate to run for office who's willing to ignore the Constitution in exchange for winning elections. 
The first step, they say, in stopping this process lies in reading, understanding, and applying the Constitution of the United States. That means, first and foremost, placing the legislative function in the hands of Congress alone and taking seriously Article 1, Section 8. In short, it means limiting government again. Again, this is a column from Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan. Well worth your time. If you want to dig deeper, you know there are plenty of opportunities. Well, this was published on the Foundation for Economic Education website. You can get a ton of great knowledge by spending a few hours on that website. Or better yet, going back on a regular basis to see what they have to offer. Also, I would encourage you, subscribe to their podcast, Words and Numbers. Marvelous, marvelous stuff. Going to shift gears here again. Um, You may not realize it, but right now we are engaged in an existential battle over who will control the information that we are able to access in order to understand our world. I know it sounds dramatic, and I guess I'm I'm trying to drive it home, but I hope I'm not over you know stating or exaggerating this. I've got an article here in front of me from JD Tuseal for Reason.com on why it's dangerous to allow politicians and officials to decide what constitutes the truth. Tuseal writes, it's no secret that governments worldwide are increasingly hostile to scrutiny of their conduct. But at a moment when too many media outlets see their role as working with the state to reinforce official narratives, one advocate of press freedom reminds us that the struggle isn't over the disinformation and misinformation called out by opportunistic politicians. It's over control of information. In other words, will people be free in the future to decide for themselves what's truth and what's BS? Or will we be spoon-fed whatever the powers that be endorse? Joel Simon, the exiting head of the Committee to Protect Journalists, told CNN's Brian Stelter, Governments realize they're in an existential battle over who controls information, who controls the narrative, and they are waging a frontal assault against independent journalism around the world. Now, he added, this is the information age. And we're in kind of a millennial battle over who controls information. Who controls it? Well, that's the power struggle. And so governments recognize repressive governments but even democratic governments, that this is an essential tool they need to maintain power and journalists are their adversaries. Now, you don't know how badly I want to believe, yes, yes, the journalists, they are the watchdogs. They are the ones who tell us what the government's doing that's wrong. But I don't think that's true in America. At least the majority of people who claim to be journalists or legitimate journalists, they're lapdogs. Their job is to please their, their friends and their cohorts and their masters, you know, they're in, in government. I mean, they consider themselves a fourth branch of government. They like to hobnob with the elite. They like to play along and pretend that everything that's happening in Washington, D.C. is, in fact, the most important thing at any given moment on the planet. And look, we're a part of it. After all, we're reporting it. Aren't we important? So I guess they become a little too cozy with power. Watchdogs? No. Lapdogs? Absolutely. Now, this is not to discount the fact there are some wonderful independent journalists out there. Uh, Maybe you'll recognize uh, some of them. Uh, Let's see. Julian Assange? Yeah, yeah. Independent journalist. Edward Snowden? Likewise. Glenn Greenwald? Well, the the list could grow pretty good, but these guys are the exception rather than the rule. Most people are just enamored with power. They like that contact high they get from associating with it. 
Where are the people who will stand up to it? We'll come back to J.D. Tusil's column in just a few moments. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. Yep, we're talking food storage. This is my good friend, Kendall Whiting, and he runs a marvelous business. Look, I, I have the deepest love and respect for people who go out on a limb because they feel a certain calling to help others get prepared and become more self-reliant in their lives. And I've been very privileged to know a few of these people personally. Um, Kendall is one of them. And just please understand, look, I would love it if he became so rich that uh, basically when he came to visit me, he would fly over in his Learjet. And maybe uh, maybe he and his butler would, would stop and you know have some ribs off my smoker. I don't know. I, but more importantly... It's the idea of getting people prepared. Food storage gives you options. And I'm not just talking in an apocalyptic end of time scenario. It gives you options when something unexpected comes up. Car trouble, job loss, unexpected illness, or or some other hardship. To have the equivalent of a little grocery store safely sitting on your shelves with a 25-year shelf life, that's peace of mind of knowing that you can feed yourself and your loved ones. And there's never been a better time to get started on it than right this minute. Okay, maybe the better time would be starting 10 or 20 years ago. But otherwise, right now is the time to jump in. Go to lifesavingfood.com. Look, if you make an order, you get 15% off, no sales tax, and free delivery. That's some pretty sweet incentive for my listeners. All right, back to the article. It's dangerous to allow politicians and officials to decide what constitutes truth. So where we broke off before the break, Joel Simon, who was the exiting head of the Committee to Protect Journalists, had spoken with Brian Stelter on CNN and talked about the power struggle taking place over information between governments and uh, journalists that many of these governments see as their adversaries. Now, Simon spoke after the release of a CPJ report at warning of escalating attacks on journalists, demonstrating the stakes for those who offend government officials are very high. The report found 293 reporters jailed for their work around the world, at least 24 killed because of their efforts. Now, the CPJ isn't the only organization recognizing that independent sources of information are under attack. Last October, the Norwegian Nobel Committee awarded the Nobel Peace Prize to Maria Ressa and Dmitry Muratov for their coverage of government conduct in the Philippines and Russia in a world in which democracy and freedom of the press face increasingly adverse conditions. The committee added free, independent, fact-based journalism serves to protect against abuse of power, lies, and war propaganda. Unfortunately, the award illustrated the extent to which journalists can be co-opted as gatekeepers. Ressa sniffed in 2019, the wholesale dumping of WikiLeaks actually isn't journalism, distinguishing her efforts from those of the organization's founder, Julian Assange, who languishes in prison, awaiting his fate after exposing abuse of power, abuse of power, lies, and war propaganda by the U.S. government. 
J.D. Tusil writes, too many journalists are open to cultivation by politicians as a separate class from purveyors of alleged misinformation, disinformation, or extremism, depending on what's convenient at the moment. Now, before the pandemic, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern joined with French President Emmanuel Macron to develop the Christchurch call targeting extremist content online. And since then, New Zealand in particular has moved to emphasize freedom from misinformation, especially with regard to efforts against COVID-19. Similarly, the British government commissioned a 2021 report from RAND Europe promoting practices by civil society, government media, and social media company actors in terms of reducing the spread of false information and building societal resilience with regard to hateful extremism within a society during COVID-19. Some pretty ambiguous terms they're using there. That's a little nerve-wracking. The report highlights Germany's notorious Nets DG Act as an example that levying large fines on tech companies that do not remove false information and hateful extremist content in a timely way can increase companies' responsiveness in removing this content from their platforms. So despite robust First Amendment protections for free speech rights, the U.S. is not immune to powerful people's desire to control information. Case in point, Representative Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez insisted last year, we're just going to have to figure out how we reign in our media environment so you can't just spew disinformation and misinformation. In July, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki called on social media companies to act as government proxies by removing what the administration flags as narratives dangerous to the public health. Now, interestingly, CPJ's Joel Simon predicted the pandemic would empower efforts to control information. Back in March of 2020, he warned, we must be mindful that when we get to the other side of the pandemic, we may be left with a narrative being written by China that government control over information was essential to combating the crisis. That would be a devastating blow to the global information system, one that could endure even as memories of the terrible pandemic we are currently facing slowly fade. Now, since then, he's been proven painfully prescient as politicians' concerns have morphed from fighting extremism to suppressing disinformation to a weird amalgam of the two, unified by the alleged need to control what the public says, reads, and shares. Now, that's not to say, by the way, that material tagged as extremism isn't extreme or that posts called out as disinformation aren't false. To open a web browser is to encounter a wide world of bigotry, bogus concerns about vaccine safety or nonsensical charges about election integrity and fact-free arguments over whether or not COVID-19 even exists. But BS isn't a recent invention. Free societies recognize it's a lot more dangerous to let government officials designate what capitals or what constitutes capital T truth than it is to respect people's rights to decide for themselves. So when officialdom makes the call, legitimate news outlets get called fake, as former President Trump often smeared his critics. Extremists get conflated with opponents of school policies, as the Justice Department did last fall and claims that COVID-19 originated in a lab leak in China are suppressed as conspiracy theories before later earning respectful treatment. J.D. Tusil says, look, truthful information doesn't require a government seal of approval because government officials are as flawed and biased as anybody else. 
They're prone to declaring debates over for convenient reasons of their own, even as new evidence emerges and disagreements remain unresolved. Not necessarily because of rejection of facts, but often over fundamental differences in values and preferences. He says powerful figures are in no position to save us from bad information because they're a major source of the stuff themselves. And if allowed, can use force to impose their versions of reality on dissenters. He says we really are in an existential battle over who controls information, just as Joel Simon warned. And it's not a battle over what constitutes truth, which remains hard as ever to determine. Instead, this battle over control of information is a struggle over our freedom to decide for ourselves without having other people's decisions crammed down our throats. I really like his take on this. And there there are places where uh, J.D. Tusil and I wouldn't line up, but he's advocating for let's at least get the information out there and let people choose for themselves. I cannot disagree with that. It just goes to show you, you have to own your own worldview. And I understand it's hard to differentiate between what's propaganda and what is truth. You know the old saying, if I had a dime for every time this and that happened? Well, if I had a dime for every time someone has asked me, Brian, what is a good, reliable source of information I can turn to 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 know what's going on in the world? I'd at least have enough bus fare to get me home. But no, there, I get asked this on a very regular basis. And, you know, the, the funny thing is there really is no good answer. Well, if you listen to this show or that show and read this column or read this person's writing, I will point out and I, I include on my webpage at thebrianhydeshow.com, you'll find resources for wrong thinkers. But I'm not, I'm not sharing those with the idea that these are the only information sources you can trust. If I share it, It's because I have come to trust the information that they share, but even then, they might still be wrong, or there may be some areas that uh, it's like, no, I can't sign on for that. But mostly what I'm looking for in the information that I'm consuming to, to better my understanding of the world around me is I'm looking for something that isn't full of judgment and labels. I want credible, timely information that, that contains light, and that's kind of a hard quantity to or quality to uh, to uh, quantify for people. It's it's like how do you know that it has light? Does it bring understanding? Does it uh, bring enlightenment? I guess would be the way to say it, or does it bring fear, anger, suspicion, or otherwise darkness or despair? I think we're pretty good at judging between those things, right? Well, maybe that's a good place to start. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Listen, if you would like to get a copy of my show notes in your email inbox each day that I do this program, I've made it as easy as possible. All you have to do is go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, click the subscribe button. Yes, I will ask for your email, and I will then email my show notes out every morning. It it asks me as I publish them, you want to send this to all your subscribers? And I gratefully click the box that says, yes, I do. 
And I hope that they're useful and something that uh, you can put uh, to good use, you know, for yourself. Follow up on these articles. Many times these articles have great hyperlinks within them that will take you further down the path to understanding these various subjects. So with that in mind, let's move on here. I've got two quick stories I want to share with you. Uh, One is from Annie Holmquist. You know, given how public schools are increasingly becoming a battleground for the minds of our children, it's hard to fault parents who say, you know what, I'm going to get my kid out. I know some people who are so dedicated to this, they're like, okay, I got my kids out. Now I'm here to help other parents who may be thinking, should I get my kids out? So it's, it's very important to some folks. Well, Annie Holmquist says homeschooling just crossed the tipping point. She says, in the months before COVID hit, a number of my friends began a new phase of motherhood by starting careers as homeschool teachers. They expressed normal trepidation, concerned they'd fail, and by extension that their children would. Then the pandemic hit, homeschooling suddenly became the new way of life, and she says, my friends were suddenly homeschool veterans, all settled in and progressing with their curriculum while everybody else scrambled to get their act together. She says, I now hear a sigh of relief and an eager yes when I ask them if they're glad they're homeschooling. And they're not the only ones. Recent data shows that as much as 11% of the population is homeschooling since COVID-19 hit. Now, bad news abounds these days. But Annie Holmquist says the soaring success of homeschooling is the silver lining in the clouds of COVID and chaos, suggesting we may have reached a new tipping point. Now, unfortunately, many try to tell us otherwise, as is the the case in a recent National Review article by Sean Michael Pigeon entitled Homeschooling Can't Be for Everyone. Yet the idea that homeschooling cannot be a prominent part of the answer to America's educational crisis is misguided. Pigeon argues that that homeschooling on a larger scale is unworkable because of the cost and sacrifices required. More affluent families, he says, may not want to dramatically decrease their standard of living by cutting off an income stream, while others simply don't want to take on the task of personally educating their children. With the increased ability of parents to work from home and the proliferation of pandemic pods, the barrier to entry for homeschooling has fallen significantly. Besides, just because a family doesn't want to live on a reduced income or doesn't want to spend time educating their children doesn't mean that it can't be done It all depends on where you decide to put your time, talent, and treasure. Now, the most interesting critique that Pigeon offers of homeschooling concerns how bad ideologies will continue to proliferate in schools if parents don't push back, and how a mass exodus of students from conservative families from the public school system will accelerate our cultural decline. Okay, well, there's, that's, that's a thought worth considering. Annie Holmquist says it's here that it's helpful to consider the concept of tipping points. Scientists have found that when just 10% of the population holds an unshakable belief, their belief will always be adopted by the majority of the society. Did you get that? 10%. Researchers at the Rennesleyer Polytechnic Institute reported this back in a 2011 study. And the author Malcolm Gladwell has also explored this phenomenon in his book published in 2000, The Tipping Point. So keep in mind that a few years ago, homeschool students made up roughly 3% of the college popu- of the student population, rather, making the tipping point a distant prospect. As of fall 2020, 11.1% of school-age households nationwide reported homeschooling their children. That's according to a recent U.S. Census Bureau report. Now, the homeschooling rate doubled in many states and tripled or quadrupled in others. 
and she has a chart with boxes in red highlighting some of this enormous growth. Alaska continues to lead the pack, 27.5% of school-age households homeschooling. One in five such Oklahoma households now homeschool their children, while 18% of Floridian households do. But she says it's not just the red states that are jumping into the homeschooling game. Predictably, Blue Vermont saw its homeschooling rate rise from 4.1% to almost 17%. New York's rate went from 1.2% to 10.1%, while Massachusetts grew from 1.5% to 12.1%. So if we've achieved the tipping point so quickly, who's to say that homeschooling's rate can't grow further in the next few years? And if it does grow more, Who's to place limits on it in terms of its ability to change students' ways of thinking and the education system as a whole? Now, some may say such change is a pipe dream. But Annie Holmquist says those who say this are forgetting that homeschooling does a great deal to develop strong families, fostered through increased togetherness. And it's the strengthening of the family that will be the commonality around which the tipping point is created. The family, one of Edmund Burke's little platoons, can achieve great things in changing the course of a country. Burke said to be attached to the subdivision, to love the little platoon we belong to in society, is the first principle, the germ, as it were, of public affections. It is the first link in the series by which we proceed towards a love to our country and to mankind. So if you're discouraged about the course of the country... She says, perhaps the silver lining in the growth of homeschooling will, cause you, will give you cause to take heart. It's always darkest before the dawn. We're about to see the light arise as thousands of American families abandon the public education system and rediscover learning and family at the same time. Definitely some food for thought. I, look, I will agree with Sean Michael Pigeon on the idea that it's not for everybody. There are some students who will not do as well in a homeschooling environment as they will in a more structured, more regimented learning environment. This is particularly true of students that have special needs. But I also agree with with Annie Holmquist that, you know, um, there may be a point where where the public school system itself is not going to be reformed from within until there's separation of school and state I don't know that the system itself can be reformed. Now, I, my wife is a public school teacher and a very good one at that. I'm grateful that her influence is there because I think not just for her students, but, but for her fellow teachers, for her administrators, she serves as a source of friction against that uh, inevitable, you know, rolling forward of Leviathan, you know, under the guise of public education. She's not an activist, but she is just a good person using her influence where she stands. So kudos to those who are doing likewise. But for those who choose to get their kids out, yeah, I won't I won't fault you in the least. And here's a related story. I won't have time to go through the whole thing here, but when it comes to higher education, there are a lot of folks who are hoping a similar uh, tipping point is approaching. Isaac Morehouse, in a piece published on everythingvoluntary.com, says it's never been more important to skip college. I know, I can, I can hear people, what, hey, <laughs> can, can you say that? Oh, yes. Isaac Morehouse says, universities are dying. They've long ceased being the best way to gain knowledge. 
More recently, he says, the degrees they confer have ceased to being the best way to signal employability, the only exception being jobs that legally require them. But usually those jobs are increasingly stodgy, unattractive, bureaucratic, backwards, and subservient to tyrannical governments. I'm sad to say the medical industry is one of these, but moving on. The final leg universities stand on is the mythology of social status. He says, that's it. That's what gives them what waning power they have. He says, I can't count the number of parents I've talked to who recognize that college is one of the worst places to learn and degrees are one of the weakest ways to try to get hired, but who still needlessly bite the bullet and send their kid anyway. Often they shackle themselves or their children to tens of thousands in debt along the way. They despise the infantilizing policies on campus and bitter ideas in the classroom. They see the waste, the corruption, the stupidity, the warped worldview and bad habits cultivated and rewarded by the system. But still they send their kids. Why? It's because they value the decaying social status indicator of a degree. In other words, they want a shortcut to communicate to the world that we are good, we're good parents and our kids are better than most. Well, he says a college degree does not make you serious, important, or special in any way. It only proves that you were willing to follow the crowd, a dangerous prospect, especially lately. He says you are free to pursue life, learning, and career any way you choose, investing your time, money, and energy any way, anywhere you wish. Do you want to empower the system that wishes to enslave you, or do you want to blaze a trail of freedom and show the world a better way? Because in that case, institutional paper doesn't matter. It's the life, ideas, and actions of individual humans that matter. You can check out the article in its entirety at my website, thebrianheidshow.com. It's there in today's show notes. If you're so inclined, take a gander at my sponsors and... Maybe send a little bit of love their way. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show.